When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from Brisbane this week. We've got a, an extensive show today. We've got to review the Women's Big Bash Final won by the Brisbane Heat, uh, which is exactly where we are and exactly what the weather is doing. Uh, we've got to talk about the West Indies and England, an absolutely remarkable test match that's just concluded there. And in the back half of the show, we'll get on to the Australian test victory against Sri Lanka at the Gabba. Uh, but at the moment, we're going on to Canberra after this. We've got a test match against Sri Lanka in Canberra, and it's going to become a new test venue for Australia. Never played a test match at Canberra, a few one dayers. Uh, and so we were thinking about test venues, and we thought we would uh, get to a test venue that a lot of people don't talk about or know about. There are the, the ones in Australia that everyone does, and there's another one in Brisbane which allowed us to get out of the Gabba, Adam. Yes, it is. G'day. Yes, that, that's right. Everyone, when you talk about Australian test venues, bear in mind, India have 27 of them. So, and England, probably upwards of 20 as well. But Australia, it'll just be 11 when we go to Canberra later in the week. Pretty much any proper cricket badger can rattle off the first 10. The six that they currently play at consistently, now seven when you include the Perth Stadium. Uh, I think there's a a general recollection of when Australia played a couple of top-end test matches back in 2003 and 2004, so that factors in Cairns and Darwin. But uh, the fourth venue used back in 1928 is right here where we are now at the Brisbane Exhibition Ground, the Ernest Bain Stand, to be precise. And I I am fascinated by this ground, have been for a long time, and and, and didn't miss an opportunity to bring you up here and and show you around and go through some of the history. It's a lovely place. We're in this uh, grandstand with the old proper wooden bench seats uh, painted a sort of 1930s yellow. Everything's very tan and beige and so on around here. Um, You know, that sort of classic old grandstand style where outdoors there might be a bit of wind in the microphones that you pick up from time to time, but that's the cost of being... On, on location, ah, the the, the ambiance, and it's it, it's it's a charming old ground. The sort of clock towers on the roofs and the turrets and all the rest of it. But there's a hell of a lot of history here, Adam. Yeah, they're, they're erecting the tarp or the tent at the moment for the Laneway Festival later in the week as well. I'm wondering so, what that was. There's this giant white <laughs> uh, sort of erection, if you will, in the middle of the oval. Yeah, so it's a multi-purpose venue these days, still with a track around it. But the cricket here is just brilliant. Donald Bradman's test debut, you know. To start there, uh, famously makes 18 and 1, gets dropped immediately. But What's uh, the, uh, the Paul Kelly line? They dropped him like a gun. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and back he was in the third and fourth test matches, making um, hundreds uh, uh, the, ne- the next time he got back in the side. But um, that England team, I mean, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the great England sides, the first test match of that 28-29 summer where they won 4-1 under Percy Chapman. But, you know, Hobbs, Hammond, Jardine, Sutcliffe, they won here by 675 runs, Jeff, which Jesus. remains the biggest <laughs> margin by runs. So yep. if you exclude innings victories, the biggest margin by runs in the history of test cricket. And it was here in the first test match ever. You'd bloody well hope it would be, 635. Yeah. So there's the Bradman element. They bowled out for 66 in the second dig. Um, mentioned uh, they went on to win the series 4-1, which, you know, you could, you could make the case it's England's best performance in Australia. Um, Wally Hammond made 905 runs in that series. Of course, Bradman uh, went and topped that, made 974 uh, the next year in England. Do you think uh, they, they had a lot of people at the time saying these flat wickets are killing Test cricket, it's <laughs> not going to survive with these bat Yeah, that's right. Uncovered wickets, albeit. Harold Larwood, uh, in a sign of things to come, 
uh, in the Bodyline series. The next time England were here, took eight for 62 in that test match. Ouch. So that was the first time that there was a test here. And two years later against the West Indies on what must have been their first tour of the country in, in 1930-31, um, Bradman, a bit back, fair to say, he made 223, Ponsford 109 in the first dig. They made 558. Leary Constantine was bowling for West Indies. They're great quick. And the West Indies were bowled out for 193 and 148, so it was a massive innings and 223 run victory. But, but there's, a, there's a footnote to but that. But there is a there? brilliant footnote. So Bradman makes 223, and the black Bradman, George Headley, makes 109, not out, out of 193. That's almost Bannerman esque. That's getting deep into Bannerman territory. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be high 50s, I reckon. Yeah. I've, I've, I've got a bit of a habit of trying to do these percentages in my head <laughs> now. I've thought about the Bannerman record so much. But, um, but, but George Headley, you know, extraordinary record that he had. Didn't play a lot of Test cricket, yep. but 2022 20, Test matches, 10 hundreds. Yeah, average 60.83 off yep. the top of my head, which is right up there with, with the greatest averages of all time. Well, I think until Adam Voges and uh, Steve Smith overtook him, he yeah. might have been second of all time or third or thereabouts. Yeah, and I think uh, Pollock was oh, yes, second, yes, wasn't yes, he? Yes, was second. 63 or thereabouts. But the, So I've got the spreadsheet that I keep, which is um, the ratio of centuries to Test matches played, which, of course... One you of know, your many spreadsheets. One, one, of, one of the many. Bradman's the freak, of course. One point seven nine is, yep. is the, uh, the the number, which should be as famous as ninety nine point nine four. Right? Will by the <laughs> end of my career, be. it will. When be. the final word is done, <laughs> one point seven nine. I'm going to get a tattoo of it on my chest so I can just tear my shirt open at appropriate Kelsey moments. Grammer style. Um, I was thinking more Jean Valjean, but um. you don't know about the Kelsey Grammer tattoo, clearly. <laughs> Please continue. Um, this is it's a cultural exchange. I feel when when we meet on this podcast. Exactly. So. Yeah, he's he's 1.79, which is freakish, but there's the other freak floating along behind him at 2.2, which is George Headley, um, and, and no one else even gets close. So Smith was coming in, had got himself up to third with 2.79 tests per century, um, and he was, I think he's just slipped back a bit after the South Africa series yeah. where he went a few tests without 100. I just think it's wonderful that Bradman and the Black Bradman at this ground in the second and final test played here. Uh, Clary Grimmett, another great of Australian cricket, took nine wickets in that match too. And, I mean... It's not just that either. The first ever women's test match was played at this ground in 1934, Australia and England. Only one test match played here for the women, uh, two for the men, but um, England won by nine wickets. But again, a piece of history here. Queensland's first Sheffield Shield game was played here against New South Wales. So a lot of debate about the Gabba right at the minute, Jeff. Mm. And it, it's, it's one of those things I love <laughs> that, that um, you know, people sort of condescend to women's cricket and act like it's a recent invention. And uh, you say, no, first test was in 1934. It's, it's been going on for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we get stuck into the Gabba a little bit uh, and occasionally uh, I think it's for effect Gabba's a great ground too for different, in different ways wonderful pitch especially and we'll come to that later in the show but mm. if they were ever looking to find a second venue for Brisbane this is wouldn't take much more than a lick of paint um, it's got that natural amphitheatre you can see into the city it's, it's a gorgeous place to watch cricket if they could They'd have to change the, the playing field as it currently stands. It's too small now. With That must be a, a dog track around the side of it, possibly something else, or maybe a trot No, track. I reckon this is, uh, because it's at the showgrounds, this would be where they show the, the horses uh, and yes. the cattle and things, yes. walk them around. So right, it's not a racing surface. It's a, it's a sort of sand gravel surface where they would parade livestock would be, would be my... Right. Guess. Well, they would have kept playing here too. The last thing I'll note about this ground yeah. is that the second Test match here, the West Indies Australia one in 1930-31, the gate receipts were so low because if you had an RNA, the, the Royal National Association, I think it's called, card, the agriculture card, yep. um, you could um, come in for free. And, of course, everyone who attended this test had one of those. They came in, came in through the gates free of charge, so they didn't think there was enough gate receipts, and that's why they, they moved uh, a few kilometres from where we are right now. Well, you could stand out on the footpath and watch, actually, from, you know, there, yeah. there are quite a few vantage points, but it's a charming venue, and uh, I wouldn't mind. It's got a little bit more charisma than, than the old cabotoir. With yeah. the, well, even uh, this grandstand, you're talking, you know, the Ernest Baines grandstand, 1922, not many grandstands from, from the 20s are still, still around, so... I like to think there's a way they can find a way to... They do lots of events here, the, 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 the Brisbane show, the Ecker, as they call it. Mm -hmm. here. I've been to that a couple of times, as I mentioned before, the Laneway Festival. So it's still very much in operation, and, and it was the first place where Don Bradman played Test Cricket. Just it imagine. Be, it should be an icon. It should be a, there should be a museum here. Imagine if you could get, you know, Hobbs, Sutcliffe, Headley, Bradman, all in the tent at Laneway, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> bit of disco biscuit love and watch, <laughs> watching the acts unroll, you know, just, 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 uh, just having a... The time of their lives. That's the first reference to, to running around on nightclubs on this show since we talked about Steve O'Keefe and the glow sticks. <laughs> oh, that feels like a long time ago. That was. It was a Steve O'Keefe celebration in Sydney. You could absolutely Photoshop a couple of um, 
couple of glow sticks into the hands as he was going up. That was against the West Indies too. Sure was. So women's first test match was played here. Yep. And now the, the pennants, the WBBL trophy is coming to Queensland for the first time. The Brisbane Heat, the hot, hot heat. They finally got up the, uh, you know, I guess it's, maybe it's hard to be inspired by the colours of aqua. Um, you I don't know, know to, about to really that. Get... Port Adelaide have done a good job in the, <laughs> over the years. <laughs> um, get and... real, that's not teal, it's aqua. That was a chant we used to chant at their supporters when they started in the competition. <laughs> Come on, Barbie, let's go party. <laughs> See, that's the reason, oh, that's the reason why played, Ash Barty played for, for the Brisbane Heat. <laughs> I'd never even considered that. That's, that. We're lesser for it. We're lesser for her not playing cricket, but great campaign. But, yeah, she was in the Brisbane Heat in season one. Yep. And, and now in season four, they're, they're victorious. And, and, and she's they were, in, she was in the quarterfinals at the Australian Yeah, Open. and I've got to say, at the start of the season, Jeff, we were doing some of our WBBL coverage, and, and we didn't expect the Heat to be anywhere near it. Very experienced side, especially yep. their bowling department. But they, didn't, they, they looked like they were lacking a match winner or two, and... And we were wrong. They've always been that side that is has been less than the sum of their parts for the first few seasons. Because mm. you know you you looked at their lineup right from season one. You know that's when Jess Jonathan was was flying coming out of the the twenty fifteen yep. Women's Ashes where she made that ninety nine in the Test match and Beth um, Mooney arrived that summer. Beth Mooney arrived and was and crashed four hundred plus runs at the top of the order and and uh, experienced players. They had uh, had Delissa Kimmins floating around for a while. Yeah. Kate they, Cross they, was well, there. They had Holly Furling in that Holly first Furling, season yeah. who who's fallen away Grace sadly. Um, and well, Grace. Harris announced herself, made 100 in that yep. first season as well, and you just thought they were going somewhere. But in the end, um, they rather slipped back season two, season three, and underperformed. Deandra Dotton was also running around yeah. for them for a couple of years, doing um, some, some destructive stuff at times, but it was just never quite enough. They never pulled it together. And this season, it felt like there were, there were no huge standout players. Mooney, I suppose, with another 400-plus season, but... Everybody chipped in. Everyone contributed. They were batting down to eight or nine, and they had eight or nine bowlers who they could call on in any given game. Yeah, and even someone like Grace Harris, who did make a hundred in his campaign, the only uh, I think she was she's the first person to score a second hundred in the WBBL when she did so at the Gabba before. Yeah, at least Perry did in about two Elise weeks. Perry did it very quickly thereafter. Um, but all the same, uh, it was probably as much her bowling as influenced as many games as her batting. She didn't make a ton of runs after that big century early on in the comp, um, but. But she was, was going at less than six and over with the ball. That's true. Well, that's what I mean. Like her yeah. bowling was almost as important as her batting. And then Sammy Joe Johnson. I mean, what, what a great story. Cricket.com.au and ran a really nice feature about her story and her, her struggles over a fairly lengthy period of time a few years ago. And that, that cricket was a big part of uh, um, getting, you know, getting her back on track um, you know, off the field. And, and now on the field, uh, Meg Lanning was saying on ABC commentary the other day that she could be a, could be a chance for a Rose Bowl berth in the, in the national side later in the summer. That's happened very quickly. That's Absolutely, and and she's she's so useful uh, in you know bowls sort of seam up can get the ball to swing quite extensively uh, has has gone for a very low economy rate but yeah. also has been coming out at number three for the heat and doing this the sort of pinch hitter cameo you know the thirty odd of ten balls kind of innings uh, which which just fires things up if they lose an early wicket so um, she didn't fire in the final and. Uh, well, with the ball, to be fair, she did pick up one for 22. You know, you look at it, again, it's that thing. If it, the point I guess I'm making is that all these all-rounders, mm. they, they, were, they were making a contribution with, in one discipline or the other, and, and it was much the same with Sammy Joe in the final. Yeah, that's right. And so she was, she was important. Everybody chipped in early um, in order to get rid of the three most dangerous Sixers players because, yeah. of course, it's Healy, Perry, Gardner. They're, they're the three really dangerous ones at the top. Healy got off to that start that she often does, smacked a six down the ground, a couple of fours over cover, um, and then was bowled. An absolute beauty to Delissa Kimmins. Swung one in, moved it away off the seam, took out her off stump. Yeah, and Delissa Kimmins is another player who... Yes, she was playing in the WBBL, but she left cricket. She made her international debut back, I think I'm right in saying, 2008. Left the game completely, lived in the UK, wasn't um, involved in, in cricket apart from a bit of recreational you know, playing for a club side or whatever it was. And then she came back to Australia, re-engaged with the Queensland side. Um, after a couple of years, she got recalled to the national squad in the 2017-18 Women's Ashes. And now she's won the Women's World T20 uh, last year in the Caribbean, a, a senior member of this of this Bruce, Brisbane Heat squad. Uh, again, it's these it's, it's the players with, with pretty interesting stories. And isn't it good to have a DK running around in yeah. Australian cricket again? Absolutely. Well, when she, when she first played, she was the opening bowler. Her... her but now she's a she's got that she has got a 
decent wheels, but it, it's, she's a clever bowler. She has a lot of variations, and that ball, as you say, to pick up Healy did plenty, and um, and uh, was the, was the pivotal moment of that first innings when the Sixers are only able to get to 131 for seven, and that flattered them. That was Danae Van Niekerk who who uh, boshed 32 or 15 balls at the end. Yeah, she looked good. Cracked a couple of sixes, um, but but it was that it, it was all around that that Perry dismissal. So Gardner fell because she can, you know, hold out at deep mid-wicket yeah. um, to, to Harris, which is sort of what you'd expect, but it was Jess Jonathan picking up Elise Perry, who'd made 33 off 37, I think, off the top of my head, and yep. she, which is what she does. She, she'll sort of tick along at a strike rate of maybe 90 through about the first 15 overs of an innings, and then blow up to 150, 160 through the last five. Uh, so she's been super dangerous this season at building a base, letting players hit around her, and then she's able to turn up the gears and, and do the damage when she can. So the fact they were able to cut her off about halfway through the innings and make sure she couldn't do that. That was massive. And Vanekirk was always trying to make up a bit of a deficit at that point, which, you know, she she looked great doing it. Just the, the sort of shape on her power hitting is tremendous. And she's got she's got the black gloves happening, which yeah. I love. No one else in cricket has <laughs> has jet black batting gloves, but Dana Vanekirk certainly does. Yeah, she's an interesting one, Vanekirk, because her batting has... Uh has come along wonderfully in the last couple of years, um, playing in England last year in that in that one day series in the T Twenty. She gives them a wallop. Um, I think for for a while there, I thought of her as as a bowler who batted a bit. Now she's very much a a batter who who is useful with the ball, takes tons of wickets, but um, and, she, and she goes really, for nothing. You know, she thought, yeah. what was the spell against South Africa in the World Cup where she took four wickets for none? I think. Yeah, that's right. At one or, point. or against the West Indies. So yeah, was, that's right. Yeah. Can, can she was the leading wicket-taker in the World Cup in 2017. Well, actually, she, she's a true all-rounder, isn't she? Because it's hard for us to discern whether she's a batter who bowls or vice versa. So. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, probably I'll, a bowler first, but has, has but come along as a batter now. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, if, if that could be replicated across a very inconsistent national side. Yeah. I mean, we always say this about the South Africans, don't we, that they've got on paper yep. a side that can win any competition, yet they were abysmal in the Caribbean um, in that uh, in that World C20. Yeah, well, you just think, you know, once they get their act together, because you've got the striking power of, like, Lizelle Lee and yep. Chloe Tryon, yeah. who are, you know, some yeah, of the best biggest... strike rate of all time, Chloe Tryon. Biggest six hitters in the game. And, and then Marisane Kapp and, and Van Kirk, the most economical, effective bowlers. How can you lose almost? Speaking of South Africans, Laura Wolvart um, had an important role down the list she in the did. Brisbane Heat. She made nine off four, but inside out over cover in the, in the penultimate over. But the, the groundwork had been laid by, by Beth Mooney. It, it's always Beth Mooney when, when Brisbane do something special. 65 we've, off. we've been great fans of her work <laughs> since season one of the WBBL. She she didn't come out of nowhere, but she certainly wasn't a sort of celebrated, you know, celebrity kind of player. In, well, she was the a second keeper, wasn't she? Like yeah. she, she at, at, at that moment, it was uh, she was vying for Elisa Healy's spot behind the She's the second keeper who's yeah. forced her way into the national team as an opener with Healy alongside her, yeah. but, but not not holding the gloves, which might help a bit. But she kept wicket through that 20 innings. She was crook as well. She'd had the flu. Um, she doesn't deal with the heat well, uh, with, with the sort of atmospheric heat rather than her teammates, which I, I think is fine. <laughs> But yeah, in slightly ironic fashion, she's a, she's a very fair-skinned um, sort of northern hemisphere type, <laughs> much like yourself, Jeff. You can <laughs> sympathise with that. Should not, should not be out in the sun, basically. So. She, she had the um, the the, the, coll- the ice collar on as well, which yeah. I'll always remember for when when Dean Jones made ninety-nine against Africa at the Gabba in 1993 yeah. a one day international nearly you know a triumphant return to the national side he was wearing that collar the whole way through and for mine I, I want to see more of it it's but, a great look so it, it was all on her because so Grace Harris had come halfway down the wicket uh, slipped did the splits almost wrenched her knee out and, and got run out because she couldn't get back in time um, and, and then Sammy Joe Johnson came and went quickly and wasn't able to do that sort of pinch hitting role that she's done so it was really on Mooney and she was batting with Kirby Short who she opened with a couple of seasons ago yeah that's but, right and Kirby Short and her back in the day were, were, were a formidable opening stand and, and the captain short hasn't been as effective with the blade this year but like when it mattered yeah. she was able to ride shotgun with Mooney she, she did the support job but Mooney did the striking yeah. you know, got uh, made a half century got into the 60s and she was in real strife you know there's, there's sort of footage of her on her haunches with the Ventolin inhaler sort of huffing <laughs> in just try it's like something from from you know Little League Carnival at primary school or something <laughs> the kids all dropping with asthma but she was in a really bad way she nearly threw up on the field at one point she was nauseated she was uh, sort of Kirby Short was saying they were tactically trying to work out where she should spew so that um, the, the fielders wouldn't want to dive in that area you know <laughs> try to throw up at backward points or something because you might you might sneak a few, few more runs through there um, but she she made her 65 before she was finally out and then uh, a little rush of wickets followed yeah it was always going 
Casey, wasn't it? Every WBBL final seemed to have a twist. Uh, I remember that first year at the MCG with the Thunder and the Sixers where a glut of wickets fell at the end and made it very tight with the Thunder just crawling over the line and it was much the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, it should Sixers... have been about three run-outs in the last over. And it was yeah. Renee Farrell, wasn't it, getting over the line? That's right. That I, and it was Elise Perry uh, aiming at the stumps from two metres and missing to, to run her out and, and win the final. But all the same, it was that was the um, that was what we had on Saturday because the Sixers have so much... There's so many bowling options. They bowled eight bowlers. They're, they're so deep. They've got so many options for Perry to call upon at the death. And in the end, um, Marizan Cap was the logical bowler to, to deliver the final over. But Shelley had five runs to play with, and they and they got there with with four balls to spare. Yeah, eventually Laura Harris coming into uh, the, the the double Harris attack to sweep <laughs> a boundary, which just got through. There was a collision of players uh, trying to save that on the mid-wicket boundary, but um, the boundary got through. But th- that Woolvart innings, I think. It's an interesting story and one that hasn't been talked about that much. Laura Wolvart, if you're not aware, is the South African opener for the 50-over form. And she's not really, hasn't really found a way in T20s because she doesn't score quite that quickly. She's used to being able to take her time a bit more. Very technically correct, drives through cover and point constantly. But if teams are onto her and they put players in those positions, she can find it quite hard to score. She hasn't, hasn't developed the improvisation to be able to... Uh, to score outside those areas. So she's been signed by the Heat and has played almost every game, but she's been battered down at number eight and she doesn't bowl. So it's this weird sort of thing where it's like they feel they have to use her because she's the import they've signed, but they don't have enough faith to back her for a role higher up the order. It's a weird one. Yeah, and to take that one step further, it's going to be important that she can make a mark in 20-over cricket because she's um, qualified to go to medical school, Laura, and she's um, she's obviously brilliant academically. Yeah, and she's, what, 19, 20? Yeah, yeah, 19. She's a decision to make whether she goes and follows that because the, the, the place at university only gets held open, for I think, for one year, and if she doesn't take it, it's gone. So uh, the fact that 2020 semi-pro cricket is where the money is going to be made going forward, um, it's going to be important for her to sort of find a way to not just be a 50-over player, because you're right, she's yet to yet to stick the landing in, in, in short-form cricket for club or country, but hopefully this will give her some confidence, because she's a wonderful asset to the game. The way she played at the 2017 World Cup, through cover, she's as good a player as is going in the world at the moment. So. Well, that's why I loved it, that she was able to make an impact, because she came out with a couple of overs left. It's such a hard thing to come in at that stage, and, and know that you have to get off strike you yeah. have to make runs I think they need 14 or 15 off 12 balls at that stage yep. and, and she was able to tick a couple of singles and when she got a low full toss we saw a lot of low full tosses not being dispensed with and she was able to crack it over cover for four so she just that nine from five that she made was instrumental in getting them ahead of the run rate they needed less than a run a ball coming into the last over and that was down to her so season four done with Elise Perry 777 runs couple of centuries I, even though the Sixers didn't win the pennant and that's the first time the trophy's left New South Wales, uh, it's one of the all-time great seasons in 20-over cricket, it's men and women anywhere around the world. The record for a season previously was from season one and that was when Meg Lanning made 560. And at the time we thought that is a bloody lot of runs. They play 14 matches, but you know, T20 cricket, you're, you're going to get out in single figures probably half your innings because sure. you have to just come out and go. 560 was incredible to get more than 200 runs above yeah. that it, it's it's a, eight scores above 50 it doesn't make any sense yeah you know, it, it's astonishing to be able to be that consistent even and she she had a few single figure scores as well but every other score she had was you know 50 60 plus and jeff you interviewed her for crick info the week before last i think it was yep. and, and you spoke to her about raising her strike rate from sort of 90 odd or 95 up to the 120s in yeah, the space 126 or 7 because worth remembering if you don't follow women's cricket closely elise was batting at number seven during the women's world t20 last year and that was a real talking point elise perry the number one cricketer in the world according to the guardians poll last year mm. um, not batting in the top six formidable record with the blade double hundred in the test match at north sydney last year and, and being incredible asked. one day record yet at t20 level she wasn't seen to be in the six most important players because of the strike rate she batted that and that's changed completely. But also sort of being asked to do a, a finisher role, you know, because yeah. you've got to come in at seven and hit. Um, I don't know, maybe that was part of of getting her kick started a bit, but she's, she said in that interview she was very conscious of the fact that the game is changing around her and she can't afford to uh, to stay still. But she's also a player who used to be much more attacking right at the start of her career because she used to come in at 9 or 10 for the mm. Southern Stars and tee off. That was the way she went. She hit sixes even back then. You know, the World Cup final in 2013, Absolutely. she yeah. came in and made about 30 off, off 20 balls right at the end just to give Australia a boost up to a, when they'd been struggling a bit. Yeah, which is the, the moment in time where her career completely changes after the 2013 World Cup. She moved into the top six with a bat and averages, I don't know, 60-odd since then uh, as, as a 50-over cricketer. So, uh, you know, there, there's no doubting her capacity 
but now she's also shown that she's got the ability to change gears and it'll be really interesting to see where she bats now for Australia in T20 cricket. Do they just open up with her and Healy given they've been so good for the Sixers or do they try and perhaps put her in at number three where they want to play Gardner so they're sport for choice in the best possible way? Well we'll see where Elise Perry bats when Australia play New Zealand in the Rose Bowl series coming up in February. 50 over matches so we'll keep an eye on those. And speaking of bowlers who can do a lot of damage down the order at seven or eight, uh, Jason Holder in the last week or so, the West Indies captain produced one of the most extraordinary individual performances in one of the more extraordinary test matches that you're ever likely to see against England. What an absolutely fantastic start to the series that was. I mean, the West Indies have a wonderful record against England at home. They've only lost once to them. That was in 2004. Um, obviously, West Indies have had a very poor 20 to 25 years you know, host of ways, with the exception of the, the T20 side, really. Um, if, you, if you draw a line through that, uh, Test cricket has been um, by far the, the, the area they've performed worst, and yet they find a way to continually step up against England, and the fight back here um, was one of the greats on day one. Uh, England were on top. Jimmy Anderson bowled beautifully, picked up his um, five-wicket bag, which made um, over 200 scalps of him away from home and continues to get better and better with age, as they say. I think Dave Tickner made that point in a piece he wrote, Jeff, that what will happen if he just keeps getting better what and better? just keeps going. What if he's 46 and he's taking wickets at about 11? Well, he's on that trajectory at the moment. But um, then the way they fought back, so the Windies get their chance to bowl in England and roll them for, for 77 with a with a formidable display of fast bowling. Everyone that came into the attack took wickets. They um, were led by Kemar Roach, who's been relatively inconsistent over the journey, but made a big step up there. Shannon Gabriel was I, quick. The Kemar Roach spell was just... Uh, that was It was some of the most pornographically alluring fast bowling you're ever likely to see. Well said, well said. And then Holder and Joseph picking up a couple of, week, couple of wickets each as well, but specifically zeroing in on Jason Holder. Let's remember, he was given the hospital hand pass to take over this side um, four years ago ahead of that 2015 World Cup, or just before he took over. Actually. Aged about, what, 23, yeah, I think he might have been 21. He was a very young cricketer. They saw leadership potential. They thought, well, we'll chuck in the armband and see how he goes. And it was a torrid start, that World Cup of 2015. They, they were abysmal. Um, a lot of pressure was on his shoulders about the way he was leading the side. He was involved in a couple of on-field scraps from memory with senior players and so forth. He was, he was involved in the AB de Villiers 100 uh, yeah. during that World Cup where, in which... From memory, I think Holder had one for 38 from eight overs and then finished his spell with one for 110 from his yeah. 10 overs. He went for 64 off his last two overs. Yeah, almost from, mathematically impossible, but it definitely happened. Yep, um, and, and that was AB just, just going completely feral, um, sort of hypnotising him, basically. AB was walking across outside off stump before the ball was bowled, sinking to one knee <laughs> and waiting... And then Holder would bowl a knee-high full toss outside off stump and he would lap it over his shoulder for six. Yeah. And it happened about five times. He just, like, like, just, just bowl it at the stump. He's not standing there. He's moved. But somehow there was He's this... He's spinning the ball on yeah. his finger. <laughs> there was this snake. I sort of, it was like a, a cobra hypnotising a, a small <laughs> mammal. I think a full toss outside off stump would be good, Jason. And there it went. It was incredible to watch. So Roland for 77. Keaton Jennings was the top scorer for England with 17, which is nothing much to speak of. 77. It's one of those ones where you wake up in the morning and look at the scorecard and think, wait, hang on. Hang on. Is that 77 for one? Is that... Like, yeah. And, and you, you have to go and read back through everything and find out that you haven't just misunderstood this drastically. Yeah, and especially after a pretty good first day. Because remember, they did bowl them out for 289 on what looked to be a relatively good batting wicket. And everybody, all of the English commentators were saying... Well, they've had a decent rally at the end with West Indies, and and they might just have put up a competitive total. Yeah, seventy-seven. And, and who would have thought? So yeah, Roach finished with five for seventeen. Pick of the bowlers, West Indies, in the second dig. They they'd lost. I think it was four wickets late on the. Th- third day it would have been, possibly the second day. Yep. Hard to keep yeah, up when these test matches move so stumps, quickly. Yeah. yeah, it would have been the second day. They come back on the third day and and, um, and Shane Darich, who we, we, uh, I saw debut for West Indies back in 2015, was joined by Jason Holder and they put on a bloody squillion, 116 for Dorich and 202 not out for Holder. Um, only the second highest score from number nine or below in a test match. Show the third highest number, score. He was, he was eight. Was he betting at eight? Yeah, he was batting at eight. What did I say? Did I yeah. say nine, did yeah. I? Uh, batting at number eight, and uh, Wazi Makram and another West, another um, a Pakistani player from back in the day, both was. made more than 202, but um, uh, Holder slips in at number three. It's, it was Imtiaz uh, Ahmed, wasn't it? I, I to, actually to, don't know. I knew it was two Pakistanis, including Wazi Makram, so I fudged. That's what you do. But I know that uh, I'm willing to accept that you know that because yeah. that's the sort of thing you would look up. It, it was, yeah, it was, it was Imtiaz, was him, and uh, yeah. And, and now and, Jason Holder. And now Jason Holder. But, I mean, the, and brought up the 100 with the six, of 
course. But, yeah, but, but after some really stubborn batting, that was the thing, is that they, you know, they knew that England had only been batting for a session, basically, and that the bowlers were buggered. And so they just, he just bled them dry. He just kept, he blocked it out and blocked it out and blocked it out for hours and then started scoring, you know. It, it was a remarkable sort of frustrating them by, by the lack of stroke making and then just the occasional boundary when he felt like it to sort of uh, put salt in the wound. And it highlighted that um, contrast at the selection table. So the West Indies went in with four quicks. England played two spinners, left out Stuart Broad and were relying on Sam Curran to swing the ball around and Curran wasn't that influential in the test match, only took one wicket. Anderson, as you said, bowled into the ground. Ben Stokes had to bowl um, 25 overs in that second dig after doing a fair bit of the, fair bit of the workload in, in the first innings as well. So um, West Indies nailed their selections and, and England um, hard pitch to read uh, by all reports over there. Certainly that was the, that was the, the commentary from those on radio and, uh, and from Joe Reid after the game. But, uh, um, but they, they, they pulled the wrong lever. Well, and, and a lovely piece from George Nobel on yeah. Crick Info about, about how and why the West Indies raise the level of their game when they play England and, and the historical uh, tensions and conflict and, and misdeeds between those two parts of the world. Yeah, I strongly recommend that piece of writing from George. It's a, it's a brilliant uh, synthesisation of, of a lot of different threads, uh, especially relating to the colonial past with the West Indies and how you just can't mistake it. Whenever you walk around a, a cricket ground, you're seeing reminders of, of, uh, of the oppression back in the day and, uh, and, uh, and, and he reflected on the, over the years, the West Indies players noting that they really wanted to beat England and yes, it, it's, it's a long time ago and uh, you don't want to sort of over-index on these types of things but um, it, it was a, a lovely way to, to put a full stop on a, on a brilliant performance. And it's one of those great curiosities of Test cricket where you go, how is it when a team has just been absolutely wrestled that the other team on the same surface can go out and bat for three days? How, yeah. how does it happen? Yeah, it's just a, it reflects how much cricket's played above the shoulders, doesn't it? And, and even really in the fourth innings of the game when Roston Chase um, picked up eight for 60 with his um, relatively nude off-breaks. I mean, I've watched Chase bowl a fair bit over the last couple of years and he doesn't spin them. He, he, um, he usually bowls around the wicket and just plonks them on a spot and waits for you to make an error. He's got a middling um, record at test level. He, I think, uh, he averaged um, mid-40s yeah, I mean, before he, this Yeah, he match. takes about a wicket a game or thereabouts. So it's not as though he can't... Um, uh, can't uh, can't strike, but eight for sixty. I mean, he's got better Test figures now than than Shane Warne ever had. Yeah, he's a, well, you'd say he's probably he's probably a better bowler than Darren Lehman, but not as good as Tim May. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> very much not as good as Tim May. Uh, so they bowled him out for two hundred and forty six a second time around. Rory, eight for eight for eight yeah. for sixty five. Malcolm Marshall never took an eight for. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. A lot of the I, great I heard, bowlers um, in Test history have never taken. Pat Cummins doesn't have an eight for. He, he keeps topping out at six. A friend of the final word. Daniel Norcross, who was on the show last year, was on the on the TMS podcast and saying that yes, this is unexpected, not quite as unexpected as when Alan Border took eleven wickets in a Test match at Sydney, <laughs> because before that, Alan Border had taken one wicket ever in Test cricket and took eleven um, against the Windies in eighty eight, eighty nine. So um, maybe we should have uh, um, been a bit more generous to Chase when he was their sole spinner. But he did a did a fantastic job and uh, to roll them, and, and I think a lot of scrutiny um, was was levelled at the England side for batting worse in the second dig. Sorry, rather, yeah, worse in the second dig than they did in the first with the exception of Rory Burns who was the first uh, who was the first of Chase's wickets I think it was he made 84 so a good sign for Burns I think that's his highest score in test cricket so far but I mean but, but there, it, there's a lot of vulnerability in that England batting lineup ahead of an Ashes series despite their firepower they, they, they've got you know a lineup that bats down to number nine and, and on their day any one of them could make a hundred well, ten really and, Rashid Rashid's yeah. batting at ten with and made, 11 first class, first class hundreds yeah. you know yeah. so there's that there's that potential and yet it can fall over like that. It's extraordinary how everybody can fail when you've, when you've stacked your side like that. They remind me of Australia. When they, when they, when they go bad, they go mm. real bad. Uh, and, and that kind of, when, you, when you're casting forward to the ashes, it, it does make for uh, really interesting series well, exactly as two that. sides that can explode and, and on their day which yeah. I mean you and I have been talking about this a little bit recently Jeff about the idea that um, Australia might be just best placed in going all out attack with the ball acknowledging that with the bat uh, they're not going to make imposing totals but if they can well, we'll, bowl out England quickly we'll, 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 we'll come, come to that, we'll come to that in the second half but what, what, oh, what, I, was off, I, on there, what I what I was interested in seeing was that someone had put up the, um, the the test averages for all of the England side, and they're not too dissimilar to the. There's been a lot of looking at the um, the career numbers of the Australian team and how we've got a lot of players sort of averaging 30s or even 20s with the bat, um, making that side now. That England side wasn't much prettier reading. You know, a lot of 30s. I think one in the 40s in in terms of the entire team and, and their test numbers. So. 
in a lot of ways, two pretty underwhelming batting teams uh, with with decent bowling rigs coming up against each other in mid-year. Yeah, and, and that opening partnership, so Burns making 84 is significant, but um, in the same sort of way that Labuschagne and Head making 80 odds in Brisbane was, it's a step in the right direction, but a long way from established. Keaton Jennings, um, yeah, lovely guy, I really want him to do well, but has not found a way to succeed consistently at test level, especially against Seam. He can't face fast bowling. Just every, every time every time Seam bowling comes down at him, he gets out for, I think he averages 15 against Seamers. Yeah, it's, 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 not it's not sustainable pretty, at Test Cricket. Yeah, both of his hundreds have been made in the subcontinent. Um, Australia will bring uh, a very potent... They won't, they won't have much of a batting lineup. you wouldn't have thought, on the available evidence, but there'll be no concern having the, the, the necessary fast bowling to pick up plenty of wickets in English conditions with the Dukes ball. Well, let's get into Australia right after the break. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. <laughs> This is indeed the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and it's brought to you every week by Kookaburra. If it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket. Remember that every week during the summer you can win prizes, bats, gloves, thigh pads, all of the kit. Every week there's something on offer. Go to kookaburra.biz, that's .biz, and sign up to Team Kookaburra and win yourself some sweet swag. And uh, we had some swag dropped off, Adam, at the live show we did in Melbourne. Well, it's nearly two weeks ago yeah. now, um, which we should have mentioned off the top. It was we wonder- really should have. We wa- missed the trick there, haven't Wonderful we? <laughs> success. Um, packed out the Commercial Club Hotel, and a big thanks to Patty for having us there. And uh, had a great crowd in, had a very good time going through the... The full history of the, the ballad of Glenn Maxwell, as it were, um, some uh, a heartfelt ode from me to Sean Marsh and his career, and uh, and some some decent questions from the audience at the end. So you can scroll back in your feed and have a listen to the full live episode if you haven't done that yet. But we got to don the whites. We got to put on the full the full Kookaburra kit and. Uh, and, and give it a give it a test run. Yeah, if you listen to the show, and again, I reiterate your thanks to Patty from the Commercial Club for making that happen, and to Jay Mueller from Bad Producer Productions, our our uh, our, our leader in this podcast. For it wouldn't have happened without him. But they we had the idea to uh, thanks to Shannon Gill from Kookaburra to to don the whites and and the uh, the Kookaburra hats and uh, and uh, and take out a, a surge and a blaze. I think were the two the two bats we had, and walk out to the uh, walk out to the, the front of the room. Actually, no, we walked out with the bubble, didn't we? We walked out with the really old-fashioned kookaburra bats. That's right, yep. Um, into, you know, onto stage, so that wouldn't have quite worked, uh, listening to the pod, not having the visual to it. But needless to say, we, 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 were, we looked apart in, in our kookaburra club, and we're very grateful for it. I, I was most impressed and surprised by the fact that they make hats big enough to fit on my head. I'm... Well, there's background to that. So Shannon Gill asked me, um, what should I get Jeff in the way of sizing? And I said, the biggest you've got of everything. <laughs> Um, he, he wears size 17 shoes, um, he wears big shirts, and he has the, one of the biggest heads I've ever seen in not just sport, I, but I, I, full stop. I could rival Cameron Bancroft in the heaviest head competition. Yeah, if you put your head on the scales like here Mitchell Marsh did, <laughs> um, I think you'd come out on top. But no, it did work a treat. But there's, there's an XXL um, head, hat band size, which, which fits quite <laughs> snugly, uh, just, despite all of the hair that I've got going on as well. Remember I had to buy you a hat in South Africa last year and had to find something that would be able to... And the only way, the only hat I knew would work is one that would have the Ben Dunk-style drawstring, so yep. you could had the hat strapped to your chin, otherwise it would have flown off. Yeah, but it was still sort of like, I don't know, trying to, trying to get a dishwashing rubber glove on for a hand that's just far <laughs> too big for it. It was to squeeze it down the sides and then pop the drawstring on and hope it stays. So they gave us a couple of bats, one of which ended up at the Commercial Club Hotel in thanks for putting on our our show, but um, you picked up, the, you took the surge with you, didn't you? I, I picked up the blaze, the blaze, the, the, and, uh, and the blaze, of course, the Glenn is Glenn Maxwell bat. Yeah, so the blaze is used it by Glenn appropriate. Maxwell, Rachel Haynes, and Josh Hazelwood. Now, um, I've got to say, changed my game, took it out on the weekend, gave it a spin. My, my entire cricketing career has been mid-wicket boundary. That's it. That's all. I, <laughs> rarely gets to the boundary, but that's the aim. Uh, I played, I played an off drive, Adam. I've never played an off drive before. I played a drive over cover, and I played a glide, a steer from a short ball outside off. Through backward point for a single. Never done that in You're my life. You're learning. How many did you make? Sounds like uh, you might have made a few. Uh, well, four, but you know they were all good shots. <laughs> having had a it was roll, an important partnership. Having had a roll around with you in the nets uh, uh, in UAE last year, and having had the great pleasure of bowling to you, that's a that's a step in the right direction. So you've had but the the thing was it was it was you know four singles, but all from actual shots. Yeah, like that went where I hoped they would go. So pop, that, that pop is, crickets never look so good. That is a big step in the right direction. So you, you were using the blaze, of course. The Kahuna is used by Uzun Kawaja, Elisa Healy, uh, and Tim Payne, the Australian captain. The Ghost, Marcus Harris, Nathan Lyon, Nicole Bolton, and we mentioned the Surge before. My favourite, the Surge, the Sergio Silvani, Peter Hanscom, Mitchell Stark, and Sophie Molyneux. So. 
make sure you uh, back in Kookaburra as they've been backing in the final word. And as Jeff said before, every week during the summer, you can win prizes, bats, gloves, thigh pads, all the kit. Just head to kookaburra.biz and sign up to Team Kookaburra. That's kookaburra.biz. And if it's not cooker, it's not cricket. Australia versus Sri Lanka at the Gabba. One of those sort of test matches that it's it's hard to take much away from. You don't feel like you know anything more at the end of it than you did at the start. Sri Lanka, obviously, were very likely to struggle in these conditions, did so, got bowled out under 150 both times, which meant it was almost irrelevant what Australia did with the bat. You know, they, they would have had to be very creative to lose that test match. Yeah, you're right. But what I'll take from it is that Jai Richardson was a, an excellent selection um, when he was first picked for the Australian squad, white ball squad, at the start of last year. People asked quite rightly, this bloke's played about five games of professional mm-hmm. cricket, what are you guys doing? But um, as we More said, like, why Richardson, am I right? Yeah, that's right. But what, what, at the time, uh, people were um, concerned about his lack of professional cricket, but his record's outstanding for Western Australia. Um, I, I think got, it was when he got in the South Africa squad, that's when people were like, hang on. How was right. He, he, yeah, was, he was right. in the it test was, squad was, for South Africa. You're, you're right, it was five first class, but we watched him bowl a lot in South Africa, and he was rapid, and you, know, you can only tell so much from training, but he was clearly the guy who people didn't want to face in the nets. Um, he moves it around, he's fast. And he's and short he's and it's skids. And he's short and, and there's, there's so much to like about him. Um, but yes, his debut, he bowled so well. His figures, of, his match figures of sort of five or 50 odd almost don't reflect how well he bowled in both innings. He could have easily ended up taking huge bags of wickets on both occasions. And just the way that he flies himself to the crease, the way that he lets the ball go, I took a photo of him with both feet about a foot and a half off the air um, in his delivery stride. He's a... He's a very gifted off the athlete. Air. Off the air. In the air, rather. Off the turf. <laughs> off the turf. Um, what does an albatross fly over, Adam? Yeah, the sky. Yeah, the sky. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about there, please Google Monty Panesar, mastermind. That's all you need to know. Our gift to you on the final word. Do yourself a favour. Indeed. So, Jai Richardson, I think, in that performance across two innings is all but guaranteed that he'll, he'll make the Ashes squad. How could you not take him? And, and, I, and I feel sorry for Peter Siddle not getting a chance to play after being in the squad all summer. I feel equally sorry for Chris Tremaine having done nothing wrong and losing his spot to Richardson, but the other Richardson. Sorry. No, hang on. Yep, yeah, it's Richardson. One. Yes, but uh, but it, but it wasn't but it wasn't the wrong call. Kane Richardson's not in Kane the mix Richardson's at the moment. Not, no, sadly, I, Matthew Richardson's not in the mix no, either. Well, well, He'd probably go all right. It's quite tall. He, he did play in the uh, he did play in one of the testimonial games back in the day. I think he might have played in the Dean Jones testimonial game in 1996. Oh, when, when Tony Modra played, uh, when Plucker Duck played. <laughs> Does he have a quick intro patch? Uh, he he bowled to Gary Ablett. I think he might have got Gary Ablett out. <laughs> So, you know, these are the things you get on the final word. There are some highlights on YouTube. But is there is there like a cricket archive profile P-duck. for a P-Duck? If there's not, there should be. I'm not sure where the testimonial games got on there, but cricket archives are sort of joint that would document that. Yeah, Tony Modra played. Emma Zoe Goss getting Brian Lara. Zoe Goss getting Brian Lara. That was in the, um, in, the, in the Bradman Foundation game the year after. They were really in fashion there for a while, weren't they? Mm. Testimonial. The David Boone game was on telly. That was, a, that was um, a forerunner for things to come. They played 25 overs, then 25, and then repeated the dose, which is what the Ford Ranger Cup became some years mm. later. So. Yeah, those, of its time. I guess those games went out of fashion a bit after they ruined Tim Payne's career with that, um, yeah. that Mickey Mouse game in I thought you were going to say Fanny Vorton's catch might have ruined Tim oh, Payne's God, career. Oh, God, no. No, Fanny Vorton's catch just ruined life for everybody <laughs> for the next 25 years because nobody in sports media could talk about anything else. It was like the top Fatty's of every catch. show. We've just got to play a clip of Fatty's catch. Oh, did you see it? What a catch. Oh, one-hander <laughs> off the ground. Oh, hello. Yep, okay, thanks. I mean, I, I feel like... I wasn't born when Fatty Vorton was going around, and yet I still know that he took a catch. I don't know anything else about him, yeah. but he took a catch once. Uh, so, so Jai Richardson, amazing debut. Um, the way he swung the ball, mm-hmm. which um, we spoke in the first segment about Ash's calculations, I put this to Tim Payne and to Justin Langer after the Test match that could Richardson end up playing two roles in England, not just the one of the, the you know the, the fast bowling barrage, including Stark and Cummins, and maybe even Pattinson will come to that. But whether he could also play that clever swing bowler, I and mean, we know that they're likely to take one of Siddle, Worrell, Copeland. One of those guys will end up on the tour. Sayers. Sayers, although Sayers is all but gone now with injury. But, you know, Sayers is the, the incumbent, I suppose, the last time they played a bowler like that um, for that role was in Johannesburg uh, last year. But I feel we, like that was less picking a bowler for a role and more a sort of sacrificial goat scenario. Yeah, to try to use it's unfortunate that, he, that he, of all the places and all the games, that was the one. But anyway, uh, but yeah, so maybe Richardson could play the role as the swing specialist as well as another quick because he's mm. so accurate. And he moves the ball away beautifully. Like, he does so much. Well, he also had the discipline. That was what I liked. He didn't say, oh, Gabba pitch, I'm a fast bowler. Sri Lankans aren't much good at this. I'm going to try to hit everyone in the head. He pitched it up? Uh, well, he pitched it up enough. He, he was sort of top of 
off stump or middle stump most times. Yeah, or, which is hard to do on a bouncy track. Pat Cummins said after play that it's very hard to hit the stumps as a fast yeah. bowler at the Gabba when the track's like it was uh, this weekend. And it was a fantastic wicket, I should mm. add. Perhaps the best test wicket we've had in Australia in well, years. I, yep. I loved it. And Cummins was a fraction shorter than Richardson in his length, um, but, but still took 10 for the match. And first time in his career, he's got that 10 for he's had a couple of nines, but he's got there at last. Yeah, I haven't looked at the Crickviz um, analysis on this, but I'm fairly sure if I did, what we would see is that um, Cummins didn't get anywhere near as much swing as Richardson and bowled back of the length and he was trying to nip it around and, and did get but, got just as much movement. Yep. So it, again, it's that um, how do you complement each other in an attack? How do you balance it out? Um, those two seem to, even though they're two right arm quicks at a similar pace, they do mm. two very different jobs. And, uh, and the and release point's very release different. Point. Although in saying that, the release point at uh, Channel Seven, uh, I think Trent Copeland did some work on this during the test. That Richardson's release point's nearly, I think, it's six centimeters short of Mitchell Stark's because he gets up so high in his last step, right. as opposed to Stark, who pretty much delivers side arms. Well, it's less about the side arm, although that's part of it, but more about where his feet are. He doesn't get as much off the ground. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an athletic component to Richardson, which mm. he said himself, I um, asked him on day one who he modelled himself on, and I think we kind of all thought, oh, you know, he's sort of Brett Lee or something like that because he's Australian, but he goes, no, 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 Dale Stain, and, and that's perfect. Mm. You know, watching him bowl, it's a massive shout to say that he's the next Dale Stain, I'm not going to say that, but he modelled himself on Stain because they're a similar build, he's 178 Yeah, they're, they're whippy, they're cordy. They're whippy, they're, they're, not, they're not big, bulky, muscular yep. fellas. They're, they're, I mean, you look at Jai Richardson fronting the, the cameras at those media conferences, he looks like he could be an under eighteen cricketer. Mm. He has He doesn't look like he's like that old at all. He's which he also looks like he could be like selling you green energy door to door or something. Like he just seems like a nice kid. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd bite off him. He's he's, uh, uh, he's, he's very, very well spoken. Yep, he's got that. Uh, he's got a bit a sense of composure. He's got a bit of a broader. Um, yep. Well, actually, his middle name is, is Avon A V O N. So if you're selling something door to door, it should be Ding Dong Avon calling. But. Uh, <laughs> You put some work into that. <laughs> I didn't. It just that, came to me. Door to door. It just came to me. But he is articulate, and, and I liked um, he, he he talks the Justin Langer language too. So Langer... Mm, uh, Justin language. Uh, Justin language. He, he, he said that, you know... I'm um, not sure if that's a good thing. I'm very confused about what Justin Langer is no, saying and, and, and half we'll, the time. And we'll come to that. But the bit, specifically, the bit I mean is that, um, well... First of all, Langer did describe him as a cricket tragic, which always helps. Langer's words himself were that it's good to be a cricket tragic in the Australian yeah, team, but we'll put that to one I side. Think the word. Um, uh, uh, he, he made the point that uh, uh, Richardson this is that he, he understands that you need to remain in the moment, be mindful that you can't focus on the past or the future. In other words, kind of meditative language, really, the stuff that Langer loves. So they're, they're, um, they're I feel like that's what Travis Head brings to his batting. So he gets caught at third man about three times, and then he goes, <laughs> I think I'll try a cut shot to third man. <laughs> Don't think about the past, just think about the present. Well, Travis Head did say that to Justin Langer after the game. Langer, uh, in, in his discussion with us, said that um, Head said, well, imagine I got caught at third man again. Imagine how that would have been. Like, yeah, imagine yeah, that. Imagine not playing that shot. <laughs> but, he, but, he did, but he did knuckle down and make 80-odd. He but no, did, Richardson, but after about five really heart-in-the-mouth horrible swipes. I think he got... Well, you know, I've been fairly critical of Travis Head, and I, I still don't know whether he has the patience to, to play in England, but well, this time around anyway, uh, whether he might need some more shield seasons to, to develop that... that um, to use Justin Langer's words, art of concentration. Mm. Uh, but um, what we did see is he improved through the innings. He played beautifully before he got out, um, disappointingly, but to a good ball. Um, and and Labuschagne down the other end only struck three boundaries. Now, Labuschagne um, is um, looking like the sort of player who does have that test match temperament, both in Sydney uh, and in Abu Dhabi, to be fair, in that second innings, and, and here in Brisbane. That's three test matches in a row where he's done something with the bat where you can kind of see there might be something there. You, you, I'm starting to buy into the idea that, uh, and, you know, and this is largely aping Ricky Ponting's view, that he's got the right characteristics to be a test player. Mm. Well, there's there's hope, you know, and he's a speculative pick. Totally, yep. That you hope might come off um, and... You know, we've we've criticised the the selection process in getting him there, but that's not to say that we wouldn't like to see the player succeed. How about that big red what, spot in the middle of his bat? Have you noticed that? I feel like he just put that there with a magic marker it's, it's, or something. It's, I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, three ball widths long down the middle of the, the blade, right? And it's just there, and it's the only place he's got any cherry. It's like he's offering the the bowling team, <laughs> saying, you know, this is the only place I hit it. He's been sandpapering, dare I say, sandpapering the blade <laughs> either side of the red marks. I, I've never never not been out of the middle. Don't know what it's like to hit one not out of the middle. Um, well, I did see him get out off the top edge in that second innings in Abu Dhabi. So um, yeah, not to, not too sure about that one, but. Uh, 
he had Crickviz tracked him as having the lowest false shot percentage in the match as well, well in that, that innings. Lo- that, 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 yeah, that, that, that's backed up by the um, the experience of watching yeah. that innings. That, he that looks very much in control, um, and he well, he got the LBW that was just clipping the bales, didn't he? The umpires call one that was. I think so. It was just shaving. (laughs) So it was mildly unlucky. No, no, no. Marnus actually was caught at midwicket. He was the bad one. Oh, sorry. Travis got the got the. Yeah, as did Curtis Patterson. I think got. um, uh, Anyway, they all fell after after the dinner interval. um, You can tell it's about three days since the. Yeah, I know, right? We're recording this on on what would have been day five, not so at least yeah the three days after those innings were played. Um, But uh, yeah, yeah. Levashane with that flick to midwicket, which is he's gone a few times in that fashion. Um, Curtis, Curtis, Curtis Patterson was the other player brought into the side who wasn't in the original squad, so yep. both he and Richardson. And again, it, 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 it requires some guts to pick Patterson in that situation. And Langer um, spoke again after the test match about how that was really worrying him. And this yep. was a... I mean, I, I've never heard... Um, this was uh, not what I was expecting him to say. He said that I nearly picked up the phone and called Pete, Pete Lawler, the, the cricket correspondent at the Australian newspaper, um, to, to ask what public opinion would be about picking Patterson from ostensibly outside the squad ahead of Pekofsky. He said he didn't do it, but he, he's that mindful of, of, the, of the reportage of selection now. And, you know, he's a little bit bruised by what happened in the UAE last year when they didn't pick Maxwell. And uh, to me, it's, my sense is that, that that shows that Langer is still very much finding his way. He's, he's yet to kind of find a happy balance between um, where he wants to be and where he wants his public statements to be and so on and I mean I think I can give him that grace he's been in the job six months or whatever it's been now yeah. it's, it's a you know I think we just take it as assume that Langer is the the um <clears throat> The, uh, the final product because he's coached at state level for a long time and been part of the system but even he is with this young side he's still a, a, an inexperienced international coach. You don't get that kind of scrutiny coaching a, a state no, team in right. Australia no one cares that much you know people care about the Sheffield Shield in retrospect when they look at the runs list and see who made some and then say they should be picked <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the kind of attention that gets, gets paid to the Shield but it, it shows that I mean maybe it shows that he's aware of the possible repercussions of how erratic they are with their selections. I don't know if it shows that they're going to improve on that process because I think that's the issue is that they painted themselves into a corner. They basically had to pick Patterson because he'd made 200s in, in the, the one warm-up match and what else can you do? You can't not pick the guy who just made 200s. It would be yeah. absurd not to. But they'd already gone out there making it completely obvious they were going to pick Pukowski. Tim Payne wrote a column in the paper about how great Pukowski was and that he was literally Will's ready to play test cricket. Yeah. Uh, but he's not going to yet. You know, they, they'd, they'd done all the signalling that Pukowski was at six and then suddenly they had to pop someone else in there because they weren't prepared to shift Marnus out and they weren't prepared to shift anyone else. Yeah, it was a real last-minute call because, as you say, the day before the test match, Payne's column in the paper, even yeah. even his comments in the press conference um, when he was asked about Pukowski because they'd delayed the naming of the side and until the evening before yep. um, they, they turned out at Brisbane. Um, it gave that impression that we'd see Pekoski make his debut. I'm sure it won't be far away. They're, they're, sure. they're setting up the, the pins for him to possibly play but, this but, week. But, Although in saying that, they brought an all-rounder into the squad, so it's unlikely they'll be able to squeeze but he can't. Battery. I mean, he can't play this week because the three players who are vulnerable all did okay. I mean, Patterson only made 30, but he It was, looked, an, imp- it was an impressive decent. innings, yeah. 86 balls Patterson faced, and uh, I mean, it took him 16 to get off the mark. What I liked about Patterson's innings was that um, he didn't seem particularly phased by it. He wasn't playing erratic shots to try yeah. and get himself down the other end to... And you can only imagine how nervous someone would be making their debut for Australia, especially when wickets were falling around him, pink ball, all these sorts of different elements uh, after the dinner break on on uh, on day two or night two, I should say. Yeah. Um, so I, I liked that, and he played some nice cut shots um, to get his account going as he as he moved forward in the innings and yeah he got a good ball to, to remove him leg before but that did quite a bit that delivery that, that, that picked him up so and um, he took an incredible catch the, remarkable the snare catch. at gully uh, and, two, and the other catch was with a, a big outside edge from Cummins and and this was uh, Curtis Patterson there's a great photo of him I noticed it live he he did this the full swan dive because he he got airborne and he had the, the ball in his right hand, but his left arm was flung out wide as well. It was like in the original Tomb Raider games, you could do this swan dive move <laughs> off a high cliff into a into a, a deep pool of water or something. It was a special move. You had to know the the keystrokes, which I once did. This was part of my life at one time, um, and, and it was very graceful and balletic, you know, especially if you had like a, a handgun in each hand or whatever it was. But that's what it reminded me of. It was it was a beautiful little moment of ballet. And that photo you mentioned, he has his tongue out as well, so it adds to it. Um, look it up. It, it, I think it was the News Limited or News Corporation photographer that took it. 
um, the MCC uh, in England do a cricket photo of the year award each year. That is going to win it. It's an amazing photo. Yep. Um, full, it's full strength, ball in the hands, hung out, as you say, that other arm counterbalancing him. His feet bowed nicely, um, sort of tailing up um, into the grandstand. People And the, and the Easter the egg that if you zoom right in... He looks just like Nicolas Cage. I discovered this while doing a lot of um, close-up pixelation work on, on that photo. It, it's, You've been looking at a lot of Curtis Patterson shots this week, the Crick Info photo as well. Yeah, well, that one, that one too, which is very neck beard, very sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, would like to talk to you about polyamory. <laughs> but I think he, well, you know, um, it, it might not have been an elegant way of getting to his selection, but they, I think that was the, a decision that, that, that will, over time, um, be supported, um, Richardson likewise. So, um, yes, whilst there are... Brings a lot of knowledge about Bitcoin to the Australian question. team, I'm sure, yeah. Curtis Patterson. <laughs> uh, and they've made another selection too. They've, they've brought Marcus Stoinis in. And, and I can understand that because they want to have the option at Canberra. We know what Canberra will be. It will be um, brutal because it always is. Uh, um, the, the, the ground that Nathan Lyon once used to curate, uh, he'll get to play a test match there. I think it's a lovely little um, sidebar to this week. I look forward to talking to Nathan about that. Um, I remember when he curated the, 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 uh, the pitch for the PM's 11 in 2000. 10, the West Indies were playing the PM. Several Lathen. years before Mark Latham wore a dirty polo and Indeed. oversized shorts. Yeah, about, about six years before Mark Latham committed that fashion crime. Uh, and, uh, and I spoke to Nathan at the toss, this is well before he was playing professional cricket, and asked him um, how the pitch was going to play. And um, he, he wasn't picked for the PM's 11. There's always one Canberra player, given the nod, and, and he was overlooked for a teammate of ours at the club we were at, which was Ben Oakley, um, the, the big fast bowler, got the nod ahead of Nathan. Anyway, he goes, well, uh, I can tell you now, no one's taking a wicket here today. <laughs> um, fast forward two hours and Chris Gale had 170 off 80 balls and that was broadly right, about 800 runs on the day and it was an absolute road. So we can expect something like that again that Lyon prepared all those years ago before he um, uh, burst onto the international scene. So storing as much as it was when Mitchell Marsh um, got a Guernsey at the MCG. Surely they'll want to give it a bit a bit of life though. Surely they'll I'm do sure they'll best. try but on the available evidence of what we've seen it might just be the square isn't up to it. But I mean if it is... Maybe that maybe they'll be pacing it at least. So we, we saw Danny Wyatt make that 100 there and true. Beth Mooney make that was in the, the women's yeah. Ashes T20 game in, in 2017 and that was it was a quick pitch and it carried and that allowed them those two players who love going through the line over cover um, sort of you know inside out and, yeah. and, and smacking over cover they were able to race along to two very brisk hundreds so yeah, that, that, there might be fair. something in that yeah no I hope you're right I hope, I hope you're right I hope it's more like that and less like the one day international uh, at Canberra in 2016 oh when, god I mean you know 350 a piece and I mean I know that India nearly chased 360 didn't they, they yeah it was something like in that reply. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Sharma and Shikhar Dawan had another, but, another uh, bash but, but more to the point Marcus Stoinis does um, get into the squad well not the squad for the first time he went on the tour uh, of India last year as I quickly spool through my brain and try to remember what tour it was uh, but it might have been two years ago but um, he gets a chance to taboo he's never really been in the frame to play before mm. um, had a fairly good first half of the Sheffield Shield season without absolutely dominating um, he's looked I mean it's hard to assess him I mean, he said himself on radio last week to get into the test side he's going to have to do it on white ball performances because he simply does not play enough red ball cricket. Mm. Um, he's always committed to playing for Australia into T20 and 50 over cricket. So the fact that he's looked good in the big bashes, I'm sure, has helped. Um, he bowled really, really well last night for the Melbourne Stars in a, in a, in a thrilling finish um, against the Brisbane Heat. So all of this folds it, into it him being a player it, in some form. It's one of those ones where you think, are they just trying to be too clever for themselves? They're outsmarting themselves. So you've got to have an all-rounder because of blah, blah. Well, do you? Why, why do you need to have an all-rounder? Can't you just have a decent bowling? It's the last test of the summer. Tell Mitchell Stark to go his hardest and... and you know, he doesn't have to. Well, look, look, he doesn't have night. to back up and play after this. Richardson and Cummins bowl beautifully. Lyon knows the ground. It, it, it just seems, it seems tokenistic to have an all rounder who's not. You know, because Stoinis has a what his first class numbers the last couple of years are he's averaging about twenty five with the years, bat yeah. until this year um, they'd, they'd really really fallen off the cliff since twenty fifteen sixteen and his bowling's in the forties so you know he's he's handy he's a decent bowler in the white ball format but in a white ball format he needs to get through five or six overs for thirty six runs you know he he doesn't need to take wickets anyway. yeah it, it's a structural thing not not, not a personal yeah. decision so I, I understand I mean Langer again but if, but if the quality on. of your all rounder isn't enough. Yeah, Why so, have one? So as I was going to say, so Langer made the point that you, his view is that if they're going to play an all-rounder going forward, they have to justify their selection on their batting and their, or their bowling. So I think that you know that that on, on Langer's own decision-making structure there, I don't necessarily think 
Stoinis will debut, but if they think they need that extra ballast, if it is an absolute road the day before, if they can see it's going to be one of those kind of matches where they want to give their, their bowlers some support and some chop out, um, that, that might be the way he gets into the side on this occasion. But longer term, you're right. I don't think, unless Stoinis um, can justify his place with bat or ball, I don't think he'll be a long-term prospect in the same way that Mitchell Marsh wasn't. I mean, Mitch Marsh was in and out of the side. He was never a mainstay. He was in and he was out, I don't know, eight or ten times in the space of three years, and now clearly he's behind Stoinis in the queue. He's been um, sent off to Shield Cricket to, you know, hopefully for his sake... To think to about it, what he's done. Yeah, to make it to make an irrefutable case over the next couple of seasons and come back as a, a more mature cricketer. And, and, you know, for his sake, I hope that's the case because we saw last summer what he can do. But, yeah, Stoinis could come in. Other than that, um, the fast bowling lineup will more than likely stay the same. Although you couldn't completely rule out them um, giving Mitchell Stark a spell given that he's out of form. I feel for him because every cricketer, Mike Hussey made this point on commentary uh, during the week, every player including himself famously, goes through quite significant form slumps over a long career. He picked up his 200th wicket in just his 50th test. That's quite an, an impressive strike rate yeah. of 51, an average of 28. He seems to always take wickets even when he's bowling poorly. Um, so there, there is a, a continued case for Stark's inclusion, but at the same time, um, whether they're going to want to um, you know, leave him exposed on a road when he's not bowling well, uh, uh, you know, there, there might be a case for um, you know, him, him picking up some general soreness and sitting this one out. Or you could say on a road you might want a guy who hit 150 at the Gabba and because it might be your only avenue to try to get a wicket is with pace. But the concern yeah. for me is he, he bowled that spell to Dilrawan Pereira who bats at eight. He's sort of nominally an all-rounder but he, he's handy with the bat. He, he smashed Australia at Gaul, made 60-odd in very quick mm. time. But in these conditions, not necessarily his place. He had a busted hand because Cummins had smashed his thumb in the first innings. And Stark was bowling between 147 and 151 yeah. over the course of a couple of overs. And Pereira looked untroubled. He defended what was there to defend. He knocked a couple of balls away for singles when they were on his pads. And he didn't look bothered by it. And it, it reminded me of you know Ross Taylor at the Wacker a few years ago when Stark hit 160 and, and Taylor blocked it down to mid-off. It doesn't matter if you're quick if you're not doing anything else, and so that's 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 the concern for me with with Mitch Stark is he doesn't look dangerous at the moment, and so you know maybe it would be better just to take a break, have a week off, go and do something else. Yeah, I I agree. I, my it seems at the moment my default answer to everything is give them a break, mm. <laughs> and I wonder whether he should be given that opportunity to recuperate. They've got these one day tours of the of the UAE and India coming up. White ball tours ahead of the World Cup. He's got a lot of cricket. He will be in the Ashes side when they play the first yep. test. That is, I mean, you can argue that he shouldn't be, but he will be a left yep. arm option. He's going to play at Edge Baston. So the question well, the is, World how Cup is his and the World Cup, the World well, Cup yeah. is what is where his focus needs Absolutely. to be because he won Australia the last World Cup. Yep, you know, and uh, one of the great individual performances in a tournament. Yeah, exactly, um, and. And was unstoppable in white ball cricket for a couple of years. He's lost that mojo. He's got to get that back. And, and you know, the Ashes is almost an afterthought, as sad as it is to say. Yeah, and we, we kind of touched on it earlier, but um, just casting forward to the Ashes as we sort of slowly wind down the podcast, there is, um, there is for my way of thinking, um, an interesting discussion to be had um, uh, about how they compose this Australian attack for England. What if they just play the extra quick anyway? I mean, we kind of talked about this... I don't know, 18 months ago on the podcast, Jeff, about James Pattinson, if he was fit, could you play all four quicks and play Nathan Lyon? I'm starting to form the view that maybe that's exactly what they should do in England, and they go all-out assault on a vulnerable England batting lineup, a very vulnerable top order, their opening partnership, um, even I mean, you know, allowing for the fact that Cook made 100 in his final test. They've barely, um, they've, they've, you know, they've barely passed 50 as a pair, any opening partnership for the last four years, England. So you know, whether you can play uh, a scenario where Richardson and Pattinson could be in the mix alongside Cummins and Stark, and of course Hazelwood upon his return, um, whether you could have that group of five and use four of them, uh, and then of course you've got up your sleeve a, a more traditional seam bowler like a Siddle or a Copeland or a, or a as we talked about earlier today, but if you have with the obviously the argument against that is your your batting Tim Payne at six. But I mean, I've, I've thought about this a bit over the years. If Tim Payne's a seven, if we accept that, and if we accept that James Pattinson could be a seven, yep. and we accept that Pat Cummins could be a seven, and I think there's a, a fair case that, that all three are. If they're batting six, seven, and eight, doesn't that just average seven? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 it might be a bit cute, but you so, know, so your batting goes one, two, three, four, five, seven, 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 nine, eleven, nine, eleven, 11, 11. So, yeah. And you know, it, it's a little us. bit what England are doing with three number sixes. But um, if it means you get the extra firepower of Pattinson, who on his day is the the best bowler in the world, just about. <laughs> if you can find a way to get him into the side this way, is he going to average? Will the amount? Will the, will, the, will the fewer runs that Australia's side make? 
for playing one or well, sorry one, one fewer batsman exactly if, if that's the equation across the series yep. if you measure that against the, the the wickets they might take with an extra quick bowler um, you know I, I think you can it, it's, it's, an, it's unorthodox I'll grant you but I, I can see a world where, where it might work it's cheeky I like that it's cheeky I like uh, <laughs> different ways of thinking about the game I suppose something you could say in support of that is that Australia's batting has been completely shit for several years yeah um, if, if your batsmen are all struggling, if, if, if the options you have, you know, we keep hearing, well, we, we don't have good players to pick, and that's, that's true for the most part. There aren't any great players in shield cricket. It's not like, you know, Jimmy Mars out there averaging 55 and, and you can get him in. You can't. If everyone in shield cricket's averaging 32 or whatever it is and you don't have any really decent players, a decent batsmen to bring in, are you kind of, you're really just wasting a spot by picking a batsman who's not going to deliver. If you pick someone who, you know, if, if you think Travis Head's going to be vulnerable in England and um, or you sort of bring Sean Marsh back and he's going to make a string of low scores or whatever it is, then, or, or it's, you know, Curtis Patterson or someone like that who has a very, you know, a pretty modest shield mm. record, what's the point almost of giving them a spot? Because that spot might be a waste. If they make 25 runs across the Test match, well, what's the point when you could have... You know, someone who could bat almost as well, or close to as well, but who could bowl yeah. as well. This is the modern game, isn't it? It's where these, um, where these bowlers who can bat, um, you know, and we see it around the world. Bowlers, guys who you would pick as a first in the first three seamers who, who can bat as well, and how over time, I mean, obviously you don't want them doing as much heavy lifting with the bat because it's mentally taxing. But sure. how you can, you know, how you can mould your mould your side. I mean, the England team in Sri Lanka is a good example of that, where they picked a thoroughly unorthodox lineup and and played in a way that suited the conditions at the time. And again, that I guess what I'm looking at here is that um, in England um, against a side who their one major weakness is their top order, whether you can blast them out and stay in the contest that way. Because if they don't, if, mm. if, they, if they bat as way they have, I know they beat Sri Lanka two days ago and they're on a high right now, but if you take the average of the way they've batted over the last 12 months, the, the, the probability is they'll struggle to win a test match against a, a bowling lineup which boasts yep. Anderson, Broad and, and Wokes, who's averaging 12 in England over the last three years. Mm. Um, it's going to be hard to see them finding a way to win a test match. Remembering they've only won three since Lords in 2005, I think it is over there, something like that. So, um, you know, it is hard to win test matches in England in any event, but with a with a lineup which has struggled. So if that's the question, maybe the answer is you just gotta take twenty wickets quicker. The other factor is that Australia's tails probably made more runs than the top order in the last few yeah, years. So it. just pick more bowlers. <laughs> bowlers make more runs than batsmen keep them going. I like it. I think it's just about the uh the end of what we've got to talk about we, today. We've covered just about everything. I'm looking down my very loose notes from before we talked. We've we have covered Everything we plan to beforehand. How about that? There we go. So we've got a test match. Except against... for maybe the Justin Langer profile on Good Weekend. But, uh, I mean, all, all I will say about that is that <clears throat> I did feel for him a bit. You know, you sit down for a profile interview and pretty much it's 2,000 words taking the piss out of you. That's, um, I mean, I'm not saying that he helped himself along the way, but um, that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's a tough ride. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes yeah. you've got to help yourself before others will help you. As, um, True enough. Many sort of cranky Christians of God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> we will be back with the final word, of course, after the test match in Canberra to see what Sri Lanka can muster next time around and see what else is going on in the world of cricket in that time. If there's anything that you think that we should cover, um, give us an email, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. You can also find myself and Adam Collins on Twitter. You can just put our names in and I'm sure we'll come up somewhere. And uh, we, we should thank those who've reviewed the podcast and, and given it a rating on iTunes. Oh, yeah. We've we, had some great reviews the yeah, last few weeks. Some lovely, lovely words to set on there, and that helps. I mean, to be crude about it, the more reviews and ratings, that, that's part of the reason why we've been consistently in the top five on the charts the last few weeks, I'm sure. So um, if you can keep um, uh, jumping in with a, with, a, with a rating, if you think we're doing a good job, that helps because fundamentally uh, the only way this podcast survives is with, um, with people listening to it and making it financially viable. Which I should mention the other part of that is that we finally got around to setting up a Patreon an account, which means that you can chip in a couple of bucks for an episode if you feel like doing that. It's uh, p-a-t-r-e-o-n, patron.com slash the final word. You can find us on there and, and subscribe to a model that gives a, a small donation for uh, you can do it on a per episode basis but you can also cap it uh, on a monthly basis if we happen to suddenly do 16 episodes in a month so we don't drain your bank account <laughs> and as always thanks to bad producer productions we mentioned jay Mueller before who is uh, doing a, a, a ton of work for us and we're ever so grateful and, and likewise kookaburra cricket if it ain't cooker it ain't cricket
And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back again in a week or so after the Canberra Test match. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. See you next time. You wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself.